Pray with me. Father, you are delighted right now. You are delighted by our singing. You are delighted that we're here. And you're delighted that your word's going to be preached. And you're delighted that it's me doing it. Help me believe that. Father, if I am just to say words, it won't matter. You've got to open hearts. And they've got to be your words. And so I'm asking for you to do both those things. To open our hearts. And to give me your words. I put myself under the authority of your word, Lord. I want to say what you want to say. And you know what each of us bring into this room. You know the week we've had. You know the pain. You know the things that are going on that we don't know what to do with. You know our guilt and our shame. And today, by the power of your gospel, you want us to feel free. So, Father, come and do that. Give us freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. We live in the age of story. Unlike in the past where scientific reason and method and logic rule, in this postmodern age that we find ourselves, story is king. It's been said that he who tells the best story wins. One of our biggest exports from this country to other countries is our stories. It's our films, our movies. Just this last year alone, all the major studios in Hollywood spent over a billion dollars researching and studying story. A billion dollars. They wanted to know why we like certain stories and why we don't like others. Why we're going to pay 15 bucks to go see this movie and we won't even give this movie a chance. They want to know what is it about story that draws us in? What compels us in a story? One of my favorite storytellers from the time I was little until now is Steven Spielberg. The very first movie I ever saw in a movie theater was E.T. I remember seeing Jaws at way too early of an age. And I remember me and my little sister Courtney playing Indiana Jones for hours. This past week, I watched three Spielberg films. I watched E.T. I watched Saving Private Ryan. And I watched Schindler's List. It was a really fun week in my house, as you can imagine. But I I was struck by the similarity in these stories. Let me tell you, in case you haven't seen. Saving Private Ryan follows the story of eight soldiers during World War II who are sent on a mission to rescue this one soldier, Private James Ryan. You see, Private Ryan's three other brothers had died in battle. And the United States Army Chief of Police decided he was not going to send Mrs. Ryan another letter saying that she would have to bury a fourth son. And so he tasked these eight men to go across enemy lines and to save Ryan. 
Well, throughout the movie, we get to know these eight soldiers. We get to see them battle the thoughts in their mind about why are they doing this? Why is it worth risking their life to save this one? I'm going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. At the end of the movie, they do find him. But two of their men had died trying. And then even after they find him, several more die, including the captain of this troop of men, Captain Miller. And he grabs hold of Ryan in his last breath and says, earn this. Schindler's List is the true story of Oscar Schindler. He was a womanizer and an opportunist of the worst kind. He was a member of the Nazi party in Germany during World War II. And he saw an opportunity to become very, very rich. He knew that because of the situation with the war and because of the persecution of the Jews, he could get really cheap labor. So he began running factories and would employ, employ might not be the right word, but he would use Jews to work in those factories. And he made lots and lots of money. But as he got to know those he was working with, as he began to socialize with those in the Nazi party, his eyes were open to the brutality of what was going on. He saw with his own eyes the carnage and the complete lack of humanity. And it changed him. And he began to buy Jews from the Nazis to work in his factory, even if he didn't need them, even if they actually cost him more. At one point in the movie, he says, I've made more money than any man can spend in a lifetime. But at the end of the movie, he's broke. He's got nothing. He spent every dime he could saving as many Jews as he could from the concentration camp, Auschwitz. E.T. is the story of a friendly little alien who accidentally got left behind on earth. And he just wants to go home. And while he's looking for his home, he meets a little boy, Elliot, and his little sister and his big brother. And these kids have just gone through a horrific divorce with their parents. And their dad is gone. And they just want their family back. Let's watch how these three films end. Tell me I've led a good life. What? 
could have got more. Aska, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. If I made more money. <laughs> I threw away so much money. <laughs> you have no idea. If I just... Generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. This car. God, what about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for it. At least one. You would have given me one. One more. One more person. Person, stand. For this. I could have got one more person. No goodbye. Be good. Yes. Be good. Tell me I'm a good man. I didn't do enough. All three of these films end with us as the audience pondering goodness. What it means to be good. Who is good? We're left after watching Schindler's List wondering, did Oscar Schindler really, did he do enough? Could he have done more? If I were in his situation, what would I have done? After seeing Saving Private Ryan, we're left wondering about Ryan's life after he was rescued. What kind of life would you have to live in order to justify the death of so many? And then at the end of E.T., we're wondering, what in the world does an alien mean by be good? These movies have all made over a billion dollars each. We are drawn to these stories. We love to watch a story in which the questions of our own goodness are presented. 
Because we're always looking for it. We are obsessed about goodness. We want to know that when we get to the end of our life that we've been good. We want to know that our life has mattered, that it's counted, that it was worth it. If we were to go out in the street today and ask someone, if you were to die tonight, why should God let you in heaven? Most people would say, because I'm a good person. And if that person's a Christian, they'll probably say something like this. Well, I believe in Jesus and I've tried to live a good life. But the reason we keep going back and seeing the same story over and over again that leaves us with the questions that were just left on these three films is because we're never quite sure. We're always looking. We're, we're, we're always comparing goodness with something else. And every time we go see one of these stories, we're hoping maybe this time it will be the answer. But for those of us who believe what the gospel says, we know what the answer is. We're not good. That's it. I could sit down and be done. We're not good. Isn't that the first step to our Christianity? Is saying I'm, I'm a sinner so badly that I need a savior. But Paul puts goodness right in with all the other virtues that he lists in the fruit of the spirit. So what does he mean by that? Because Paul's the guy, right now we're studying Romans with this teenagers, and we've been in the first three chapters of Romans for a really long time. And let me just tell you, that man really didn't think we were good. And if you read the first three chapters of Romans and you leave thinking that you escaped being condemned, you are crazy and you're probably a psychopath. Because he goes to great lengths to say, we are all bad. No one is good, not one, he says in Romans 3. And it culminates in Romans 3.23, which says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what is Paul talking about when he mentions goodness as a fruit of the Spirit? I couldn't wait to dive into the commentaries to see what they said. And you know what? There wasn't a whole lot. Most of the commentators put goodness and kindness together or put goodness and faithfulness together. It was almost like there's something about goodness that's mysterious. There's something about goodness that's elusive, that's, that's really hard to explain. My hero's Martin Luther. I couldn't wait to read what he had to say about goodness. One sentence. That was it. And it wasn't even a good sentence. (laughs) But the general consensus was that goodness has to do with integrity. It has to do with character. It has to do with truthfulness about oneself. But not just that. It's a goodness, an integrity that is generous to others. So goodness is an integrity that is generous to others. Another way to say it could be goodness is knowing our badness and then responding to others knowing that. Goodness is knowing our badness and then moving towards, interacting with, encouraging, responding to others knowing that. When I found out I had goodness, I was kind of annoyed. I don't know if you know, but I was Christian of the Year at our high school uh, here back in the day. So I know how to be good. And really, I could teach you some things this morning 
that would help you feel good. I could teach you some places to be obedient that would get you recognized and noticed. And oftentimes on a Sunday night, I'm tempted to do that very thing with our teenagers. Because I know if I could just teach our teenagers how to be good, then my job as a youth pastor is secure. And I would have parents so happy with me. But every time I start to think about that, every time I start to go down that path, I hear the words of my Savior. I hear the words of Jesus say to me, like he said to the Pharisees and teachers of law of the law in his day, you blind guides, you take these converts and you make them twice as fit for hell. So I'm not going to teach you how to be good. But I am going to teach you that goodness is knowing your badness and then responding to others knowing that. We're going to look together at a very familiar passage. It's part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as found in Luke 6. And it's actually a passage that most non-Christians know. They can quote it. So let's look there together. Luke 6, starting in verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, pouring over, will be poured onto your lap. For with whatever measure you use, it will be measured to you. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both end up in a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. How can you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Or how how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove that speck of sawdust from your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, remove the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth Speaks. This is what Jesus said. Jesus here is talking about goodness. He's talking about an integrity that leads to generosity to others. He's talking about knowing our badness in the way we interact and respond to each other. But he goes at it kind of a backwards way. He goes at it by addressing the opposite of integrity, hypocrisy. Why do you think most non-believers, most non-Christians know this passage of scripture? 
Why do you think they can quote judge not? Why do they know about the plank? What do they call us a lot of the times? Hypocrites, right? Now, many of them will say, I don't even come to church. I won't even be around Christians because of the hypocrisy that's there. When you hear that, you probably respond one of two ways. You might be like, yeah, man, those hypocrites. I hate that the church has hypocrites in it. Look at what the hypocrites have done to the name of Jesus. It makes me mad. Or you say, they just feel guilty. They, they just don't want to feel convicted. They want to be free from having any kind of authority. They definitely don't want to come under the authority of the church and of Jesus and of Scripture. So that's why they call us hypocrites. Maybe you're right. Maybe that is why they know those verses. Maybe that is why they call us hypocrites. But if we respond in either of those two ways, what have we just done? We've judged, right? We've judged our Christian brothers who are hypocrites. And we've judged those who don't believe. And what does Jesus say right here is the first sign that you're a hypocrite. Is that you judge. Now, I know most of us here would say, I know I'm not good. That's why I'm here. Church is the place that I come to to proclaim to the world that I'm not good. But do you really believe that? I think the reason we become hypocrites is because we don't really think we're that bad. And when we look at other people, I mean, you go watch Schindler's List and and you really will feel like I'm, I'm not that bad. But the reason we don't look at our plank isn't because we just don't think we're bad. It's because we're actually worried that we're really bad. We're worried that if we actually really looked at it, we would see some stuff that we don't want to see. Charles Spurgeon has a great illustration about our sin. He takes an acorn, and I, I did this in the first service, and um, I didn't have an acorn, and a little girl went out and found me one for the second, because she said the sermon needed that. So, <laughs> this is going to make it so much better. So here's an acorn. He said, Spurgeon said, within this acorn is an ocean of trees, because within this tiny little acorn is everything necessary For a huge tree to be born. All inside there. There is nothing that that tree has that doesn't exist right inside that little acorn. And not only does a huge tree exist within this acorn. But that huge tree has acorns. Thousands of acorns. And every single one of those acorns have huge trees inside them with thousands of other acorns. And so within one little tiny acorn is an ocean of trees. Now, the only way we know that 
were to be if this acorn were to fall in good soil. And if it were to get watered and fertilized and a big tree would be born and then all those acorns on that tree would need to fall into good soil in the right conditions. But eventually, within this tiny acorn is a whole ocean of trees. Now, if the acorn were to fall on the pavement, it would just rot and die. But just because we don't see the ocean of trees from that one acorn doesn't mean that that power doesn't still exist in that acorn. Spurgeon goes on to then say, what's murder? It doesn't just start as murder, right? It starts with a single thought. I don't like that person. That person has wronged me. Or that person has gotten in my way. Now, by the grace of God, oftentimes those thoughts then drop on pavement. But what if they fell into the right soil? When Jesus gives this illustration of this speck and this plank, it's dramatic. I mean, a speck is, is, is you can't even see it. And a plank, this isn't just a two by four. This is a load bearing beam meant to support a building. So Jesus is saying, what is in your own eye is so huge, it could support an entire structure. So if you want to focus on the speck, know that you've probably got a lifetime of looking at and seeing your plank first. We do this all the time. I do it. When someone has wronged us, Don't we spend a whole lot more time thinking about the ways in which they've wronged us than we do what we brought into the equation? Don't we spend a a lot more time thinking about their badness and not ours? Don't we? I mean, I know I do. I, I, I like to play out all the different things they've done bad to me so that I can make sure that when they apologize that they've realized all the things. Right? But that's a hypocrite. Because what Jesus is saying here is that I'm capable of all the same things. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you're capable of all the same things? things. I found out last week that someone I love very dearly thinks I'm judgmental. I was very upset by this. I I thought, what? Who does she think she is? She obviously doesn't know me. She obviously doesn't know what I teach. She obviously doesn't know that I try to present grace in the most radical way I can think of. She obviously doesn't know that last time I preached here, I said I didn't believe in God for a little bit and, and that there are people probably still in this church that are wondering why I'm still here. And I know you're here and I forgive you. <laughs> she obviously doesn't know that is what I thought. And then I, and then I started thinking, well, you know what? She just feels guilty about the way she's living. And she's just, she's just transferring that over on me. And, and, and because she's around me and she feels guilty, she's blaming me. But it's really her own conviction. Maybe. I can dismiss it like that. I, I can say, well, you know what? That's her problem. But what's the good 
I could do for her? What kind of character do I need to have towards her that would be generous? Well, the reason she feels judged by me isn't because of what I say. She knows what I say. But it's because when she's around me, she doesn't believe what I've said. John Newton said, you can never tell someone they're a sinner. They have to be shown. Well, the same thing goes for our interactions with other people. We can't just say that we're a sinner. They have to see it. So the good thing that I could do for my friend whom I dearly love is to show her. The reason she feels guilty is because the secrets that she has, she thinks are too big for the mercy of God. And she thinks that mine aren't. So what could I do? I could tell her my secrets. I could show her that I need my Savior to be just as big, if not bigger, than hers. But why won't I do that? Well, one reason is because I think that I have a speck and she has a plank. Because I have such a shallow view of my sin, I can go away thinking, you know what, hers is bigger than mine. And the other reason I don't want to do it is because to actually look at my capacity for sin would cost me way too much. And if I shared that with her, what if I lost my job? I'd definitely lose my pride. Any affirmation I get from my little statue that I have in my office for my Christian of the Year award would be gone. Reminds me of the story of the rich young ruler found later in Luke, Luke 18. And this rich young ruler comes to see Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, the commandments Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Oh, 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 I have kept all those since I was a boy, he replied. Then Jesus, looking at him, says to him, you still lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. Then your reward will be in heaven. Then come. And follow me. You remember how the story ends? Not good. The young man, sad, turns and walks away from the one he called good. Says he walks away sad because he had great wealth. What's going on there? Jesus has just exposed this man's plank. He's made him look at it. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You pay no attention to your plank. You fail to see it yourself. And what Jesus is, is he's making him look at it. And when he sees it, he cannot bear it. I don't think his plank was materialism. I don't think it was one particular sin. I think it was his whole 
system of worth. You see, he was young and wealthy. Probably when the other boys were messing around and playing in the creek, he was working. He was doing the things he needed to do to be successful. And I believe he's earnest when he says, I've kept the commandments since I was a boy. I bet he tried really hard. I bet he really wanted to be good. And his wealth and his possessions and the way his life had gone up to that point was just an affirmation that he was doing good. That money that he had acquired, he had worked hard for it. That was God blessing him, saying, thank you for working hard. His ability to keep the commandments, that had blessed him. And Jesus looks at that and he sees the effort that he's going to be good. And he's saying, get rid of all of that. Get rid of everything that tells you of your own goodness. Everything that affirms to you that God is pleased with you. And he can't do it because he'd be left there just himself. He'd just be left there with a heart that has an ocean of evil inside it. What about us? Like what, what are the things that we're holding on to to make us feel okay? To make us feel like we're good? What are the things that we attribute as blessings from God for our behavior? Does your family make you feel good about yourself? The way your kids act? Just wait till they go to college. Is your job the way that you've worked really hard and now you're making money and you look at other people and you say they're lazy? is Is that God blessing you for your hard work? What about your busy schedules? What about the fact that you have done all this kind of charity work and you take your kids to soccer practice and you wear lipstick and you make cookies? You know, like what if it's all that stuff? What if all of that is affirming to you that you are good, that God is pleased with you? What if Jesus said, get rid of it all? Could you be left there with what's left? I was thinking about this young man a lot this week. And I wondered if he was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. I wonder if he was sitting there and he heard Jesus say, no student is above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. I wonder if that was the spark that said, I'm going to go follow this guy. I'm going to get it. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out from this good teacher how to be like him. How disappointed he was when the good teacher told him, you're not good enough. But what, what if he had taken Jesus up on his offer? What if he had accepted the invitation? What if he followed him? He would have seen that plank removed from his eye and the good teacher nailed to it. He would have seen the blood of the Son of God poured out all over his plank. And he would have realized that it cost him nothing, but it cost Jesus everything. Until we see our sin as costing us nothing and Jesus everything, we will always be stuck playing the hypocrite. 
Now, I'm not saying that sin doesn't matter and that it doesn't affect you and there isn't relational things that happen when we sin. Of course there is. But listen, until we see our sin as costing us nothing and him everything, we will always have to pretend. Because the minute we begin to see our sin, especially in the presence of a holy God, the weight would be too heavy. The cost would be too heavy. We would not know what to do with it. So we'd either have to despair or we'd have to pretend. But if we see our sin as costing us nothing and him everything, there is such freedom and generosity we have to offer other people. Do you know how we know that the spirit of goodness is here at this church? As if on Sunday mornings, this place was filled with sinners. And I don't just mean us sinners. I mean like real, in your face, I'm still doing it kind of sinners. Because if the Bible's true, every person is seeking God. Every person is on a quest to find purpose and fulfillment and life. And everywhere they look apart from Jesus will lead to death. Martin Luther said, not Martin Luther, excuse me, my other hero, St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is seeking God. So if that's what they're seeking, why aren't they here? And the only way that they'll come here, the only way that they'll stop using the excuse of our hypocrisy is if we know our badness in such a real way that when the opportunity arises, we can be generous to them with the way we tell our story and the way we talk about the gospel and the way we talk about our Savior. Now, I'm not saying go out and tell every single person all of your sins and your secrets and throw up on people. No. But shame on us if God presents us with an opportunity to show empathy and compassion. And our hypocrisy keeps us from doing that. Shame on us if someone leaves our presence feeling like a worse sinner than us. Because listen, if Jesus really paid it all, if it cost him everything, we can look at it. We can look at every single part of it and not be scared. So goodness is knowing our badness and then responding to others knowing that. One of my other favorite storytellers is Mel Gibson. Braveheart, great film. I think his best film was um, The Passion of the Christ. And Mel has given the tabloids plenty to write about, right? Womanizer, adulterer, got a divorce, domestic abuse, fighting with the cops. There's that anti-Semitic rant that's all over the internet. And you see Passion of the Christ, you think, God, really? You're going to have that guy tell that story? God says, yes. You know why I think the Passion of the Christ stands out above all the other films about Jesus and the crucifixion? is because in every frame of that movie, 
You see a storyteller who needs it to be true. Parents, I've been working with your teenagers for five years. Do they know that you need this to be true? And I don't just mean that they know theoretically. I mean, have you shown them? Do your teenagers, will they say, you know what? I'm going to trust Jesus no matter what because I've looked at my parents and they've shown me that they need him. When we tell our story, do you and I tell our story in such a way that those who hear it leave pondering, am I good? Have I done enough? I wonder if I could be like him. Or do we tell our story in such a beautifully vivid and truthful way that the response is, oh God, I'm so glad it's all about grace. Amen.